what brought you here, aside from loyalty to me, um, of things that you'd like to, to talk about and hear about from your, um, from your associations of what those words mean and how they might fit together. Queering, religion, both of those are buzzwords. And then depending upon your background, you might have some, um, some energy around Catholic. Uh, I want to start by sharing an anecdote with you. When I began in 2017 to teach this class, Queering Religion, I had a student right away, as soon as I handed out the course syllabus, <gasps> gasp, and I thought, oh no, here it comes. She said, I thought the title of this course was Querying Religion. And I was so excited to think about a class that would focus on the Quaker practice of queering. I'm Quaker and we query, and my mom and I were talking about how cool it is that we'll be querying religion at a Catholic university. And <laughs> she said, I don't know anything about queer. I'm like, that's okay, and we are querying. I thought that would be a great title, actually, for the class. Um, another iteration of it. But that moment I learned, Quakers query. <laughs> and Jews question and challenge and insist and demand on making a text or a story or a Jewish idea relevant and compelling and wrestling with that text and with those ideas until, until it fits and it feels authentic. And that is something that sometimes um, I take for granted as a Jew, but when I'm teaching in a non-Jewish environment, I really come to appreciate how my spiritual inheritance provides me with um, an obligation to question authority. Abraham, in the Torah early on, God tells him to do something and he's like, what? Are you kidding? I, how can I do this? It's not ethical, it's not just. And he challenges, in the story, challenges God. And in the story, the character God really appreciates Abraham taking him to task. And they compromise, they come to a compromise. And from that, I'm reminded that Jews wrestle with divine questions and ideals and circumstances. And whereas others might say, well, it's because it's tradition or it's because this is the way it's written. I've been given um, a, a tradition that says, don't stop there. If, if it's a religion that's going to make sense and, and be, feel like it has integrity, it has to stand up to the questions, the hardest, most difficult questions that you would bring to it in order for it to um, be something to follow. So I want to thank, uh, that's my, my first story, and the evening is uh, made up of stories that give you some notes or field notes of what I've been learning while working in a Catholic environment. Um, I wanted to begin by thanking Manny and Manny's for this idea of bringing uh, uh, professors to this community cultural center and space. I think it's a fabulous idea. And I think I, think I might have been, the, in, in the first 10 minutes of seeing it and getting the invitation, like, I wanna be, I wanna be part of that. And I also wanna name that Manny has been uh, quite a rabbinic voice to me in the last year. I had a chance randomly to, um, to hear him talk about to hear him talk at Congregation Emmanuel about his own health scare and how being in a medical emergency moment enabled him to sink into prayer and gratitude for every breath. And um, I heard that at a time that was particularly poignant for me and it really resonated. So I wanted to thank Manny for being a teacher and Angelina for being a student and now a teacher. 
an instructor, and I also wanted to acknowledge Aaron Hontapper, who's the director of the Jewish, the SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice at the University of San Francisco. And Aaron is a tall, white, Ashkenazi, Jewish, heteronormative, cisgender man. <laughs> and he has made uh, it his mission recognizing the privileges of those identities to direct the Jewish Studies and Social Just program to lifting up four communities in particular that are often on the margins. And he um, focuses specifically on Jews of color, Jews with disabilities, Jews who have a different narrative on Israel-Palestine issues than the mainstream, and queer Jews. And everything we do in the SWIG program of Jewish Studies and Social Justice lifts up the voices of those four communities. Um, this is his book, Judaisms, and I cannot recommend, if you're interested in Judaism, a book more than this one. And believe me, I have a very big library of books, so the fact that I'm lifting up this particular book. And part of it is that it, he had the chutzpah to add an S to Judaism, teaching us, reminding us that there's not a monolithic Jewish community. If ever there was, I'm not sure there was, but there certainly isn't now and that Judaisms are influenced by where people, other, their other identities and the intersection of their race and their um, sexual and gender identity and their nationality and their religious practice or not religious practice. And so when one says, um, well, I wanna speak about Judaism, they're only narrowly talking about the Judaism that is from their lived experience. And that extends in my learning to coming to understanding about Christians and Catholics. There are Catholicisms and Christianities. And um, it could be said about, for sure, the Abrahamic traditions. There are Islams. Um, and part of the, the joy of working in this Jesuit university is the commitment that Jesuits have to um, religious pluralism, to recognizing that um, there are multiple religious stories and narratives and they're uh, all to be told and shared and learned from. And yeah, so one of the, field notes, this is the title of my talk is Field Notes from a Rabbi. Among my field notes include that um, the Jesuits in particular have some tremendous values and put them into action in education. As a Jew, I didn't know anything about it till I got to USF and that's field note number two. It's amazing how little we know about each other uh, I mean, as Jews, we're just happy if Jews get a Jewish education. We're not spending our, you know, precious time in religious school teaching Jews about Christianities. We want them to be literate about so many things having to do with Jewish ideas. And same with seminary. So I went to school for, for six years at the Hebrew Union College of Jewish, the Jewish Institute of Religion. And I didn't have a single, um, I had one course requirement in my second year of school that introduced me to Christianity very loosely. And um, I had no classes that taught me or expected me to read and know anything about the Gospels or the New Testament. I had no idea actually until having been a rabbi for 20 some years I had no idea that the Gospels include stories intended for Jewish audiences in the first, in the common era. And 
anyway, the idea that we know so very little about our neighbors and um, the dominant religious culture that we live in, I have been committed to deepening my understanding of, around New Testament, around Gospels, and around Christ Christian values, specifically Jesuit values. One of the Jesuit values that works really nicely with queering religion is called cura personalis, cure of the whole person, care of the whole person. And so um, the Jesuits and USF have been bold in supporting my queering ministry, my queering religion ministry. I think it's really funny, but um, just last week I learned that I have a budget line in the university budget called queering religion. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, uh, included or uh, in spending, I bought a big banner. It's a vertical banner. It says queering religion. It has the emblem logo of the Catholic University and it has the star from the Jewish studies program. And I don't know, I have a feeling there aren't very many vertical banners saying queering religion any, at, at any of the other Jesuit universities around the country. So um, I'm gonna pause there for a moment. I keep taking the cover off of this, but really I'm gonna set it down. I, I did bring this for people to um, attention. So, um, let me tell you a little bit about what queering religion does entail at USF. Um, well, from 2000 to 2015, I served as the spiritual leader just down the street at Congregation Sha'ar Zahav. And that's where I would say I got my credential to queer religion. Uh, Shar Zahav, in those years, among the things I'm most proud of having participated in, included um, helping to create a prayer book, a queer Jewish prayer book that sits in hospitals and prisons and college, university ministry offices, and mostly in people's personal libraries. And it's a book with um, 140 community voices adding their petitions and prayers and poetry to a very traditional Jewish prayer book so that together you have some, something that reflects back to a queer identified person, their integrated spiritual life, spiritual, sexual, gender identity is reflected back to them in this book of prayer. And um, so I'm very proud of, of the Sea Door, among other things. And um, now the Sea Door lives in this Catholic ministry. There are 50 copies of that. and. Every week, we have a, a lunch called Breaking Bread in the Binary. And students come, they, they can be guaranteed something tasty that's not from the cafeteria, usually hummus, usually from across the corner, truly med. And, uh, and some kind of icebreakers and then exercise or a reflection that um, helps them think about spirituality and queering spirituality and claiming um, new rituals, new customs, new practices that they might try on and explore, new prayers, some of which are from Sidor Shar Zahav, so that's always there. We often start with some kind of blessing uh, or prayer or thanksgiving, and it's reminding me that I actually wanted to start with um, a land acknowledgement, which is something we always do in classes at USF. I don't know how frequent that is in other places, but um, yeah, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that we're um, here present on 
Ohlone land and um, it's unseated and we have to work towards acknowledging and considering reparations. And as a Jew, I feel like that's something I know we know from in seeking reparations. So we have to work for reparations. And I know that this is acknowledgement is infinitesimally small act, but um, at least it enables us to acknowledge the past and present and emerging leaders uh, in the hope that it will it will shift us towards making justice, um, a future justice. So, um, so we have Breaking Bread in the Binary and we have a uh, student retreat that happens every semester where we take people to somewhere where there's no religious iconography and invite them to um, meditate and, and walk and um, sing and dance and come out over a fire, a fire campfire, coming out stories over the campfire. Um, and this year we're hoping to have 40 students go away with us. When I came it was sort of fledgling and so I'm pleased that there are students that are building this tradition of it being every semester getting off campus. And we invite different people from faith traditions who are part of the campus to come up and participate in the weekend. Um, so those are some of the programming things we do for queering, queering religion. But then I wanna tell you briefly about two of my courses. So when I first came, Aaron said, if you put queer in the course catalog title, you'll have a very popular class because at this Catholic university, queer doesn't appear in the course catalog. Now I'm happy to say there are four classes this semester that have queer. One, I, one of my friends, uh, co colleagues said, I think we should put queering in front of every subject in the university and there should be one class. So, but um, back in 2017, that was a first. And what I came to quickly learn was that because my course was a, in the Jewish studies program, I could do, we, we as Jews could do for the Catholics what the Catholics couldn't necessarily do from the, for themselves. And in Judaism, there's something that's known as a, there's an idiom referred to as a Shabbos Goy. What is a Shabbos Goy? It's someone who's not Jewish, who on the Sabbath, does things for the Jew that the Jew is not supposed, is not um, a lap permitted to do, like make a fire, for instance. So in an, um, in an orthodox environment, Jews don't make fires on the Sabbath, that's an act of creation, and on Shabbat, we act as if everything is as it is, and we take rest, we imitate the story of God resting on the seventh day, so we don't make fire, we don't create, we don't add, we just are and take time out from. So in Orthodox communities, well, who's gonna turn on the lights? Who's gonna pull the lights on? You have someone who's not Jewish come in to do that. That's referred to as the, the one who is the Gentile in the community hired to do those things on the Sabbath day that the Jews can't do. So I have likened myself um, in terms of queering religion as the Shabbos Goy. I can do for the Catholics what they can't exactly do for themselves by putting my big rainbow flag in the university ministry office. And um, hi, welcome. And making sure to publicize the miracle that um, that is queering religion at a Catholic university. It's, it is actually kind of miraculous that I don't have to worry that I have the kind of academic freedom to be able to say, you know what, the Abrahamic faith traditions are guilty and responsible for the damage we've perpetrated for thousands of years in engendering homophobia and transphobia in taking the teachings that are largely ambiguous, ambiguous and situated 
totally in misogyny and making them be about something else and enabling democracies to create legislation to kill us, basically, to, to legally kill. So as a serious Jew, I feel like my response, as a lesbian Jew, as a professional lesbian Jew, I feel like my job is to name that, that we have to take responsibility for the damage that we have perpetrated and to offer corrective. And so in my queering religion class, I invite uh, 10 different practitioners, artists, activists. Um, Marty Rawlings Fine is one of my guest teachers. I'm delighted to lift you up as, as one of my teachers. I bring in 10 to 12 experts from different traditions and I invite the students to, to like learn that Lutheranism, Bishop Megan Rohr, um, uh, formerly Bishop Megan Rohr, the rock star of the Lutheran movement, uh, that Robert, uh, New, Robert Newlings Newton, who is uh, from Imani Church, a black church, that there's our communities that are inclusive and embracing, and you don't have to dismiss religion just because religious people and religious teachers have um, done what they have with our texts and our ideas. And that's, that's something most of my students, just to give you a sense of the demographic of USF, were re recently ranked as the number one diverse university in the country. 24% um, I think of the student body is white. I'm a minority when I teach in my classrooms and 65% of the community of the students campus identify as n not religious, nuns, not nuns, but nons, non-religious. <laughs> and, um, and many of my students are one generation away from having had really religious parents or grandparents, but living in an assimilated time and place they have had the luxury of throwing off religion and seeing it really just as an oppressive construct. So one field note I would say is that when you put a Jewish female lesbian rabbi at the university ministry office, it makes for a different, students can't just sit like, actually maybe there is something there for them. Maybe it's not the hierarchical, clerical, boys club experience of homophobia and transphobia that they've just assumed is what all religion is. If you put a rainbow flag in the university ministry office, sometimes people are interested in crossing the threshold and finding out a little bit more. And particularly uh, my, my experience has been that um, most of my students haven't met Jews, haven't met Jewish women authority figures in their tradition, um, and or let, leave out Jewish, haven't met female religious authority figures, and certainly no one who um, talks about the gifts and joys of being queer. Um, all right, I wanted, there's two more stories that I wanna tell and then I'm hoping to open it to your questions that may be of interest to you. Um, my, my wife, Wendy, she's lovely, she's right here emanating positivity. She asked me a question on the way over here that I hadn't really given much thought to, but I think is actually fascinating, and that is that historically Jews and Catholics have, there've been tensions, and we talk about there being a Jewish-Christian dialogue, a Jewish-Catholic dialogue, but historically that's largely focused on anti-Semitism. And so her question was how, how are those, are those tensions manifest um, as you experience them on campus? And 
the, the two stories I want to tell to answer that really focus on, um, I would say the headline is Jews as Guests. It's a Catholic campus and the Jews, Jewish programming, we are there to, to do it and we are reminded that we are guests. So um, when I was first being celebrated as the, the first rabbi in residence uh, on this Catholic campus, they invited me to the Mass of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that happens at the beginning of the semester. And they said, of course, Rabbi Angel, you'll participate. And I was like, well, I had never participated in a Mass before. Uh, and they said, well, it'll be lovely. You'll, you'll sit on the bima in your robe, and we'd like you to do the reading from Isaiah on the seven gifts. And I'm just curious, by hand raised, does anybody know what that passage is? Just by reference, the passage from Isaiah on the seven gifts. So she said, this is what you'll read. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about but I'm happy to look it up. And she said, well, oh no, you know, the passage in the book of Isaiah where the seven gifts are mentioned, the gifts of wisdom and understanding, um, the gifts of compassion, the gift of, the, of having fear in God, you know, the seven gifts. I'm like, well, I know the book of Isaiah, and I will return to look at what this passage is. It's, by the way, chapter 11, verses 3 and following. It's a very famous messianic prophecy. It's a passage of Isaiah that Christians use to point to and talk about um, when Jesus will bring us, endow us as human beings with ample measure of these seven gifts. So she says, you know, you know the part in Isaiah where Jesus says, I'm like, wait a minute, I know the book of Isaiah, but Jesus isn't in the book of Isaiah. <laughs> so I've, I've often told that story because it reminds me of my first field note I mentioned. We know so little about each other's traditions. And we don't know what we don't know. Like, here's my Catholic colleague assuming that as an ordained rabbi of 27 years, I would for sure know this very central passage to her faith tradition that is used as a proof text throughout the New Testament. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I felt like an imposter of, how, you know, how could I not know the, the seven gifts? Um, then we agreed, well, I looked into it and I figured out what it was and I realized that what we shared about this text was the not yetness of it, namely that we hadn't yet all been endowed with great measure of these gifts that will enable us to make um, for a, a world repaired. We, we, what we share about this text is we long for such a time and it's not yet. And so I said, I'll, I'll um, read it first in Hebrew and then have a student translate it and then I'll have to contextualize it how it's, you know, part of the not yetness of what we share. And she goes, wait a minute, we already have a homily. We already have a little sermon. I'm like, well, I could just give the short blessing for new beginnings, the Shehechianu. That sounds good, she said. So I pivoted to that. But there I was in, in my the Mass of the Holy Spirit, and um, I was sitting next to the... Greek Orthodox priest who, like me, is a guest on this campus. And he explained to me later, as a Greek Orthodox um, person, he usually doesn't sit on the pulpit because there was a big divide between Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy 
And sitting on the bima makes it look as if we're all one community, and actually there was a big split. But because you're being honored and asked to sit on the bima in this unique time as the first rabbi, I'll join you so you won't be alone. I said, that's lovely. He's very tall. I said, that's really lovely. <laughs> so there we were sitting on the bima, and the president, Father Fitzgerald, um, he proceeded to read a scriptural passage. And what I later learned was like, there's the first reading and the second reading. And the second reading is a passage usually from a, a, a New Testament text, but it can be any passage. There's no like, like for Jews, every week you know for the next many hundreds of years, you know what the Torah portion will be that you read on that Shabbat. But in this case, there was some choice about what the um, calendar reading would be. So I'm sitting there, all ready and open to hear, and the passage that he picks is from Corinthians, and it reads, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor um, master. There is neither male nor female, there is only one in the body of Christ our Lord. So <laughs> that's a hard text for me to, I, I'm like, I'm, it's printed. I heard him and it's printed and I, so I go to look at it again and I go to my Greek Orthodox friend, like, did they pick that? because we were going to be here or like in spite of the fact that we we're going to be here like am I supposed to feel friendly towards this text or I'm uncomfortable with this text is how I feel like I think if there were another editor a modern editor they might have also added there is neither gay nor straight there is neither trans nor lesbian there's only one in the body of Christ I mean maybe that's hopeful thinking that the editor would have gotten that in the canon but the idea being that actually this text doesn't isn't inclusive to me there are Jews there are non-Christians we were not all to be homogenized in order to coexist that's that's not the world to come our our beautiful differences are what make for the rainbow and um, I want to celebrate that. I don't want to like blend it all together. And wow, when it was over, I was had chutzpah and I went up to the president and said, like, I really need to talk to you about that text. <laughs> and he like walked the other way. And I realized that was sort of the beginning of realizing too that I. Um, just because I see myself as a religious authority and Jewish people see me as an ordained rabbi, that being a woman and being queer, I'm not gonna get a front first audience with um, the Catholic president of, the, of the, the priest of the university, that that's not, I am not, there is neither student nor employee or staff member or clergy ordained who are going to be one with the president of the university. So um, so that, that's, that's been a learning. And over the summer, a rabbi colleague said, hey, I have a banner for you. Reproductive rights are Jewish value. Why don't you put that in your university ministry office? And I'm not gonna do it. I already have a flag in my university ministry office and I wanna be able to keep flying it high. So whenever I'm introduced, I will say, this is a terrible time in history and it's never been a better time in history for a lesbian rabbi to teach queering religion and get paid for it at a Catholic university. So I feel like, um, Something I didn't know until I started teaching was that in the state of California since 2011, we have had legislation in place that requires public schools in, throughout the state of California 
to teach LGBT history, LGBTQ history in civics and history courses. So I'm just curious by a show of hands, how many of you in your high school years, God bless you, how many of you in your high school years encountered material positively having to do with LGBTQ history? One, two, where are you from? Where did you study? And what was the class? Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So it was your curiosity driven by your own commitment to, to go in that direction and you didn't have a teacher who stood in your way? Yeah. Awesome. Um, and what about you, Angelina? Where'd you go? Yeah. I have. A, I, I just asked this question to 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 forty um, undergraduates, and three out of forty said they had something in their classroom. So part of part of what I want to say is, if you're in a public school, then. And, and you didn't get that experience, it's because it, well, it passed as legislation, but it took some time to trickle down. It's still taking some time to trickle down. Sullivan, I'm interested in finding out if you're gonna get exposed to any of this history in high school. But, um, but it's, it's a, I wanna c compare that to Catholic teachings about, Christian teachings about Jews through the ages, because, um, as recently as the 1960s, in, in 1960s, there was a Vatican gathering called Nostre Aetate, and they, among the things they said that that Pope in, insisted on was that Catholics must stop teaching that Jews killed Jesus, that that's no longer how we're supposed to interpret and read those texts, and that that needs to be stopped. And even though that was the, the, main the you know headline it's still the case that it's taking time to trickle down and so what's my point there that it's awesome if you're in a public school that you're living in a state where you're going to hopefully encounter this material um, but if you're living in the state and you're coming up through, say, a Catholic school education or a um, Jewish Orthodox religious education, you're not going to have this. You're not mandated. There, there's no one in your school who's forced to teach something positive about LGBTQ history. And so back to the demographics of USF, 65% of the students identify as nons. Um, but about non-religious and about 20% identify as, um, 20, 25% identify as having come from some kind of faith tradition and the majority of those are Catholic students. So, um, also, USF represents 49 different countries and 47 states in, in um, the United States. And um, yeah, that's just part of the diversity profile, I guess. Mm -hmm. With what you were just talking about, about the, oh. <laughs> Sorry, hi, um, regarding uh, what a lot of Christian traditions teach or, or trying to change about their teachings around uh, Jewish people, um, tying it back to USF, do you have any idea of like the 
demographics in terms of evangelical? Because I know that particular denomination or sect within Christianity, um, it's seeing it's still seeing growth more globally, but they are very much like their job is to convert everybody who's not like them. Yeah. Which yeah. creates a hostility for everyone. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I do have students every semester who come from um, fundamentalist homes. Uh, just this last summer, I had three students out of 30. One was from a Muslim fundamentalist home. One was from an evangelical Christian background. And one was um, actually from a Jewish messianic background. And... Um, but the students themselves, like, they recognize a hypocrisy early on and feel very protective and distant from their faith traditions. So those students are already coming into these classrooms feeling like um, they've been traumatized and hurt by religion. And like one student, said, I kept praying, praying that USF would drop its requirement that you had to graduate with a theology and religious studies class. And then all of a sudden on the banner, I saw a class that would fulfill that core requirement called Queering Religion. And I thought, there must be a God, <laughs> you know? So I do have a lot of students who, um, who really have been really deeply damaged by people in their family, priests, ministers, religious school teachers, all of whom have hated on queer folk. And, um, and I love that, that part of what I get to do at this place is wave a banner that says like, I see you and we're here to help address that. We wouldn't need to queer religion if queer people hadn't been mistreated by religion, right? So. Um, yeah. Oh, thanks. I think what you're doing is awesome. Like, it's very cutting edge, and I really applaud you. Um, and it seems like the basic message of queering religion, that course, is um, hey, queer people, you have a place in religion. Mm -hmm. um, which is awesome. And my question is about the majority of the students at, U at SF, USF, thank you, USF, who do not identify as religious. Um, could you talk a little bit about like how many of those people take your class? You know, if they don't identify as religious, do you offer anything like? hey, religion or even spirituality has something to offer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and if you want to talk about any like people who come to you personally, that would be interesting too, like counseling one-on-one. -on -one. Well, first, just hearing your question makes me want to undress a little bit. So, <laughs> I'm, so I am going to like, um, I don't know if it's your voice or what it is, Karen, but anyway, here I am. I'm, I'm taking off my first layer and I, I'm boasting my... Um, I'm a bigger lesbian than you t-shirt. Um, I just want to say my, uh, something about this t-shirt is that when one day I was on my way to teach class, this is like great outfit for class, and I realized the board of trustees of this <laughs> private university are meeting and gathering, and there's some kind of protest though, because they're raising um, tuition, and so there's, this gathered protest, and the, they're intentionally doing it, so the Board of Trustees have to walk by through this protest, and all I've got on is my I'm a bigger lesbian than you t-shirt, and anyway, t-shirts can, can be a form of activism, definitely. Um, so most of my students are nervous about religion, and aren't identifying as practitioners, even if they were three months prior to arriving to college. Um, 
And I think a success in my class is, is when students come to see that there are all kinds of wonderful things about religions, like community, like being part of a shared group of people who value coming together, whether they like each other all the time or not, but are there to show up for each other for life cycles, for highs, the life highs and the life lows. And um, part of my class in, it deals with um, learning about marriage. Why, why would queer people want to get married? And students, students will say, like, marriage is the last thing I'm interested in. I'm from a failed marriage. Um, climate change, have you heard about the more pressing things that we should, be? marriage equality is like really low on the list, Rabbi. And, but by the time they meet and hear from a few couples who worked hard to be able to queer their customs to make it work as an authentic, you know, gay wedding, that they think maybe, maybe I could make this ritual my own and not just throw it away because it's heteronormative and resembles all the things that are make us suspect about marriage. Um, oh, they see these two black men bringing in like eight different religious traditions that they've all dabbled in and each act is full of meaning and, and they're all on board and the students witness that and then they have to think, well, yeah, why, I might want something like that myself or to make something like that for myself. Um, that's one of the gifts of, of, I think, liberal Jewish practice is that we have full permission to manipulate something, to take what works and leave the rest behind. Um, and I think you asked another piece that was about counseling, but um, I, I wanted to, to, to mention uh, the second class that I teach, because you all might know some people who would be interested in being part of this course. It's called um, Honoring Our LGBTQIA Plus Religious Elders. And what it is is I pair students in groups of three and four with someone 60 and older who's queer identified, and they meet for an hour over 12 weeks. They are interviewed, the elders are interviewed in uh, five different areas. Their coming out stories, their experiences around Stonewall, from Stonewall to HIV, um, what their relationship with their religious identity has been vis-a-vis -vis being queer, um, how feminism influenced them in their lives, and um, what they think and how marriage equality has been something that has something that they've thought about or helped to make happen or couldn't have been less interested in, but to talk about some of these highlights in queer history over the last 60, 70 years from a lived experience. And so they get, the students get history, they, they get uh, like a queer grandparent or aunt or uncle who takes interest in them. And the, it's an obligation for Jews to be able to transmit your legacy to another generation. And most of my elders aren't raising children of their own. So to give them a chance to to pass down their story, their history, their legacy, the students make a little legacy video uh, to 10 to 12 minutes, capturing some of the um, highlights in their elder's life. And those are being um, uh, archived and are part of a, an exhibit that will be called um, Mapping Jewish SF. And um, they're actually, this semester, they're not all Jewish. So I'm looking for, Elders who have a sense of being a, a, from a faith tradition and having made it their own and um, who are good storytellers and, and making those um, matches. That's the, the class I'm teaching this semester and I'm loving it um, already. I have a really great group of students.
Um, I like what you said about like making the Jewish tradition your own, like through the context of like queering. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk more about like if there are any particular like spiritual practices or like religious texts that you have reinterpreted or like understand like through a queering lens and like what that means to you, like what those traditions feel like, um, what those practices feel like and, and what makes it like queered to you. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll, the first, I have two examples. The first one is our dedication of learning. So um, it's a Jewish tradition that when you sit down to study a text and or have a, a ritual of conversation that's meant for learning that you, prior to actually engaging with the text, you take a moment to set an intention that the the learning and the, the energy in, invoked in the act of learning and transforming, that that energy should be directed to someone either who's sick and could benefit from positive energy or to the memory of someone who, would they have had this opportunity to learn what we're learning, it would have been for their fulfillment. It would have made them more content in this world. And so yesterday, uh, it's, we're still in the first few sessions of our class, we do something that we've, que we've queered our dedication of learning. So students are asked before the class begins to think about who in their families would benefit from this course of honoring LGBTQ history and values and ideas. And, and then they light a candle, or in this case, since we're in a classroom, they uh, put their tea light on. And we begin by talking about uh, uh, reading a piece that one of um, my friends, Joss Eldridge, wrote about the power of memory and how when we share memories of loved ones, we resurrect their goodness. And then uh, she talks about Matthew Shepard and gives a little vignette about his life and death. And um, another elder talks about Gwen Alojo and her death and her legacy in our community. And then the students each go around and they've given some thought to it beforehand and they share, um, you know, for my brother, this is just yesterday, for my brother who committed suicide because he knew in our family he couldn't be gay. And, and actually, she cried and three other people, we all were like very choked up. My grandmother, my mother, my uncle, my, my uncle who died of AIDS, we never talked about what that was. And they go around, they dedicate their learning. And then we say some prayers to, to honor those memories. And, um, and that concludes our, our, our ritual. For, for, for me, that moment, that ritual, it introduces a lot of people to ritual. And what makes it religious? Is it the flame of the candle? Is it the um, intended, the, the, the way we've directed our hearts? Is it the way we are listening to one another? Is it the petition that God help us cherish these memories and use our learning for to advance and repair? Anyway, so it's an introduction to a ritual. It's queering that ritual. Um, and what makes it queer? Partly it's the content, I would say, in, in that case. But another example is our um, queer social justice Passover ritual. So it's a custom to do a Seder, and there's a book that tells stories that talk about the liberation from, from the narrowest place to a place of freedom. And we use that structure, but we've changed the symbols and we've changed the stories so that we're talking about what it's meant to be liberated as queer people and what it's meant to survive AIDS and what it's meant to um, bring women and men who were once not at all interested in each other um, back into relationship during the fires of the pandemic. and. 
And so it's, a, it's always, a, a Seder is always a teaching mechanism. And in this context, we've queered it and um, appropriated it and are using it to tell our stories. So instead of a um, piece of matzah, we have a um, bundle of faggots. Um, and instead of a, a um, two candles to bring in the festival, we have a rainbow candelabra. And there's a reading on what each of the colors of the rainbow mean. And, and then there are many passages having to do with um, the history of, of, of our community. Did that answer your question somewhat? Hi, thank you so much for the presentation. I have a question about the university. Is there a big BDS movement, a boycott Israel movement? And do they use the word anti-Zionist? And does it feel anti-Semitic to you? It's a great question. I would say that um, in terms of what we see on college campuses here in San Francisco in particular, like at state, I would say USF has the least amount of interest or antagonism on um, regarding Israel and Palestine. And I think there are a couple reasons for it. Um, one is that our program lifts up this counter narrative. So the Jews on campus, Jewish Studies and Social Justice, the department and program is known for promoting Palestinian talks, um, whenever we have some, a point of view, there's always another point of view. There are multiple narratives always at the table. I think there's a wonderful um, mural when you get on the freeway by Palestinian artist, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, we featured him two years before the pandemic, uh, bringing him and his story and his art to say this is what we, we want to be educated. And um, we also offer a uh, alternative to birthright trips. So USF has a um, two week, very, very well subsidized as you know, birthright trips are um, called Beyond Bridges, and they spend a week in Israel and a week in Palestine, and they have educators that go along with the students that are Israeli Jewish and Israeli Arab, and um, we see it as the best trip possible for young people to take. It's only within the four years of your university, whereas the birthright has a longer uh, window of, of opportunity. Um, one thing I have been aware of is that there some sometimes where there could be a more robust conversation on Israel and Palestine, some uh, non-Jews will come in quickly to shut it down for fear that it's it's gonna become a divisive conversation. So, um, so that's kind of an interesting angle that like for the Jews, we could have a conversation that brings multiple narratives, but if someone say in the School of Education is wanting to have a pro-Palestinian panel, I've noticed that, that in that case it got really quickly shut down. And some professor came to me and said, do you think as the rabbi in residence you could help create more spaces where we could have more dialogue? So that, that's actually something for this year that we're, we're thinking about doing. Um, there was another part of your question. I, th you know, you may or may not know, but I have my own journey around. When I first came to San Francisco in 2001, I gave a sermon. Um, it was my second Yom Kippur sermon 
uh, in being a rabbi in this community, and I came out as a Zionist. And um, during the course of my sermon, it was like a couple days after 9-11, and I had a different sermon in mind, but I offloaded that and made it. And during the course of my sermon, like about 30 people got up in the Herbst Auditorium and walked out and subsequently called me to task to, to learn more and to offer a more a different set of narratives. And in subsequent years on my trips to um, Israel, I would make uh, inroads and relationships in the occupied territories um, and then come back and preach about that. And it was, it was like a, you know, I was there for 15 years, so it was a very dynamic and fluid learning. And I would say by the time I left Shar Zahav, I had very different ideas and thoughts about Israel-Palestine than when, when I first arrived. Um, and I'm delighted and proud to be at a play, in a place where Aaron uh, prioritizes and prefer makes a preference on lifting up, creating safe spaces for Jews to criticize and critique Israel. And um, yeah, I feel like that's what we need to be doing. I yeah. think we have time for one more question. Everyone, <gasps> I know. Um, I will ask the final question then since no one seems to be raising their, oh, oh. Um, I just said you were naming a lot of um, stats about the university. Do you know how many, like the population that's like queer identifying or LGBTQ? Yes. I feel like it's probably really big, but I don't know if that's just because I surrounded myself with everyone who's queer. You know, I, I love ending on, on that because um, for the first time ever this last summer, our provost, who's African and um, and religious and a dyke, um, and is proud and comfortable talking about those identities, she wrote in a letter to the university that, uh, for the first time in print, said that somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the university are queer identified. That's awesome. And what's awesome is that they, they know very well that putting that in print is gonna rub some people, like when I first came and there was all kinds of publicity about me, we got a few Catholic um, conservatives who wrote in and said, well, there goes my alumni money. And like, what a Shonda, that's a shame for the Jews and the Catholics. And you know, this story made it all the way to the Jerusalem Post actually, and they, um, they wrote, really hostile, negative things. But um, yeah, it's quite sizable. And you know, whenever I am at the microphone, I say, and I'm a professional lesbian rabbi, it's often the case that like some adults, meaning professors, staff, administrators, and Jesuits, will come to me and say, thank you for saying that out loud. That really makes more space for me. Even though everybody knows there are tons of queer identified faculty and staff, people aren't naming it and it's like, and it's not the content of what they're doing. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I wanna end with one last little story that I, I just, have to share, which is that um, every semester, my, my classes, they fulfill an elective uh, in gender and sexuality. So I have certain points I have to make in order to get that, in order to get that credit. In order to give like a lecture on sexuality, I have to cover certain kinds of things. And I always make a point of telling my students, you know, this may embarrass some of you, but I, I, I gotta tell you, in Judaism, masturbation is okay. And I point them to the text in where um, the, the man named On, he spills his seed and he's killed and it's 
from this biblical story that onanism is is considered reprehensible and morally forbidden to spill your seed. And then I show them that like as early as the fifth century, the rabbis are arguing about how that is just terrible teaching that it may have been the case that Own dropped dead, but it certainly wasn't because he was spilling his seed. Uh, well, there is a lot of kinds of commentary where they go back and well, how much speed can seed can you spill? Is it like is there excessive masturbation? Then that's not okay. But here in the fifth century, we're having these conversations, and I want you to know that not all religion prohibits you from touching yourself. And in fact, in this time of pandemic where it's hard to make connections. Think of yourself as having you know, some exercises as given to you in querying religion for pleasuring yourself and discovering your, ple- your abilities. And, and like, students will write to me every semester and say, oh my God, that lecture changed my life. Like, I've never been given permission. I've never been told it was okay. I've always been told it was sick. I've always been told save that for your husband, the, the message is, so here I am in 2022 with the privilege, like certain entitlements and privileges of what I know and believe and can hang on my religion as being, um, and it is, so may you go out tonight and however you go, may you find the joys and delights of being created human with bodies and, um, and there are many ways to, to multiply. Uh, so multiply these ideas and pass them along.